A quick word before our uh, regularly scheduled program, if you will. Uh, we have noticed of late that there has been some audio issues, uh, some cutting out in the video and in the recording, uh, particularly it's in the recording. We've been working to isolate what it is in our system that has been causing it and get that out of there. Thank you again for your patience, and we'll get that solved as soon as we can. If you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn with me this morning to Genesis 19, looking at verses 14 through 30. Last time we were together, we followed two angels into the city of Sodom. And they were there specifically to see if the cry of the city unto God was true, that the city was mired in the depths of wickedness that the cry unto the Lord had indicated. There we saw that Abraham's nephew, Lot, invited these two angels into his house. Certainly an extension of hospitality that we might expect in the Eastern mind, but perhaps even more so an attempt by Lot to offer them some measure of protection from the depraved sexual aggression of the men of the city. This aggression is not appeased by Lot's efforts, however, and the men of the city surround the house. They demand that Lot deliver these men, and when Lot refuses, they then come after him, at which point the angels had all the confirmation they needed that the, the city was indeed depraved, and they went about to call Lot and his family out of that city because the city was going to be destroyed. And though there were not 10 righteous in that city, by which God had promised Abraham that if there were indeed 10 righteous, that the city itself, that the entirety of the city would be spared of the, of, of the judgment through the intercession of the righteous, yet God's character had not changed. The, the idea that the judge of all the earth would do right, the idea that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked was not conditioned upon there being 10 righteous or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. Think of it as 45 or two. Instead, God was going to call the righteous out of the city before its destruction. There simply weren't 10 left by which the city could be spared. So he calls Lot out of the city with his family before the city is destroyed. And our exposition, as you see, will begin in verse 14, but we're actually going to pick up in verse 12 for context. The Bible says this, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. Verse 14, And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So the angels asked Lot, if there's any others in his house who could, be, who could believe and be delivered. And Lot says that the first thing he did is he spake unto his sons-in-law, and he told them that they needed to leave the city because the Lord was about to destroy it. Now, there are some things to think about here. First, we recognize that Lot had two unmarried daughters, two virgin daughters. The Bible does not say how many married daughters he has, except that he has more than one son-in-law, it would appear. It says sons-in-law in the text. And so he has at least two married daughters. We have no record of Lot having any sons, although the angels did say, thy sons-in-laws and thy sons and thy daughters. So perhaps he has uh, sons as well. Uh, there's no record of them in the text. Uh, the second thing that we note is that the city was filled with sodomy, but these men were in 
marriage relationship with Lot's daughters. Uh, so as we might presume, these were men who were not necessarily caught up in the same sin as the city that was around them. But as we know, and, and then that's, that, that's a, a, a presumption, it's not a conclusion, it's it, it's not, certainly not the case that they would not necessarily be sodomites simply because uh, they were married uh, to women. Uh, but uh, as we know from our own culture, even if they were uh, faithful to their wives and everything was, 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 was structurally right there by God's design, uh, the decision to be in a proper marriage according to God's design does not inherently mean that these men understood the breach of God's design that these men were, were inhabiting. It does not mean that they cared. It does not mean that they were not also subverted by the philosophy, even if they were not subverted by the action. And to be quite honest, it seems as though that's what we see here. That though Lot found husbands for some of his daughters, presumably men that were still committed to the proactive uh, marriage and, and, and thus procreative union designed by God through marriage, these men nevertheless were not men who were willing to acknowledge the depth of the depravity that they were surrounded by. Not men who understood the breach of design that they saw. They were not uh, maybe taking part in that evil, but though they were not taking part in that evil, they were not necessarily set apart from it either. And to this end, when their father-in-law told them of the judgment that was coming and compelled them to believe the word of the Lord by which to be spared from said judgment, they didn't believe him. It says he seemed as one that mocked to them. They thought he was joking or uh, crazy or overreacting. And so they felt no compulsion to heed Lot's warning. But the problem is by not heeding Lot's warning... They did not heed the Lord's warning to regard the danger that they were in or to lead their families into safety. We continue, verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. So we fast forward to the morning. We don't exactly know how long this was. We might presume Lot had a couple of hours to go uh, seek to talk to his sons-in-laws to prepare himself uh, to depart. And in the morning, the angels hastened Lot to go to take his wife and the two daughters that were still under his care and his authority. Those were the two daughters that we talked about last time that were still in his household that were unmarried and to flee because the judgment of the Lord was coming and was coming quickly. Verse 16 and while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. There's a lot that I want to talk about here, but I'm going to wait until next week to talk about some of the, the um, uh, allegorical or metaphorical ideas um, that are connected in the New Testament between Lot and the judgment that is coming as Jesus speaks of it. So we're going to talk about that next week, and I'm really wanting to, to point those things out now, but I'm not going to. But Lot was lingering. This is interesting. Lot is one that God cannot and will not destroy the city until Lot is out of the city. He went and he talked to his sons-in-laws, and now he's doing whatever he's doing in his house, and the angels are out of here. And even though Lot knows that is about to happen. Even though judgment is something that he understands must come, he recognizes its need, even though he is righteous and therefore he is going to be called out of it, he is still, even himself, he is struggling, he is lingering. 
so much so that the men have to grab him and take him out of the city. They told him to go. He didn't really go. They had to grab him and take him out of the city. Whether he was trying to collect more things, whether he was grieving and trying to find a way to convince his sons-in-laws, whatever the reason might have been, he was delaying in his departure and the angels grabbed his hand. They grabbed the hand of his wife and his two daughters and they brought them out of the city. And notice the little statement in between. The Lord being merciful unto him. Lot was righteous of this sin of sodomy. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. God makes a way of escape. God delivered Lot from this judgment, but make no mistake, God was still being merciful to Lot here. It was still an extension of God's mercy by which Lot was not being overcome in this judgment. Lot did not have the right to be spared this judgment. It was God's character that compelled him to spare Lot, not Lot's character. It was not that Lot was something special. It was that God's character compelled him to bind himself to Lot's faith, as God does bind himself to men's faith. God is under no obligation to do anything for or against his creation, save for that which he has obligated himself unto through his unchanging character and his covenants. So the angel takes them and brings them outside of the city, presumably not too far outside of the city because the next command will be for them to run. So the angels didn't just drag them all the way to safety, brought them out of the city, got them out of the context where they were lingering, whether it was because the stuff was there or his sons-in-laws were there and his daughters or whatever it might be. They got them out of that context, brought them out of the city, and then we read in verse 17. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. So these two men bring them out of the city and then give them a direct set of commands. Escape the region. Don't look back. Don't stay in the plains. Go to the mountains. And this is how they could avoid being consumed by the judgment. Get out of the region. Don't look back. Don't stay in the plains. Go to the mountains. And Lot hears this, and upon hearing this, he is troubled. And he immediately makes appeal, an appeal for a different solution. Verses 18 through 20. And Lot said unto them, O not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight. And thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast shown unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold, now this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. So Lot appeals to the grace and further mercy of this angel to allow him to flee, not into the mountains as the angel compelled him to, but rather into one of the smaller cities nearby. And the reason that he gives is that he fears if he flees to the mountains that some evil would overtake him, whether that would be bandits or wild animals or simply the danger of the rocks themselves. He's fearful for his life. Now, we don't need to be too hard on Lot here. In a matter of hours, he's gone from sitting in the gates as an elder of the city of Sodom to leaving his home, his married daughters, abandoning whatever, whatever wealth he has been able to accrue in the city and the influence that he has gained there and forced to kind of start over. It's a stressful set of circumstances and his clarity of mind may not have been uh, as good as it could have been at other moments of time. But there is something very short-sighted about Lot's request here, isn't there? If God has gone through all the trouble of sending these angels, of seeking the city, of sparing him from death, in his grace and in his mercy, 
then is the command of God, is the place that God then tells you to go going to be a place where you will die? Where evil will come upon you? Or would we expect that if God is in the process of sparing my life and redeeming me from a judgment, that the place that he sends me is going to be what is best for me? And this might be a measure of faithlessness of sorts. This, this might be something that we could key in on and really think about in our own lives. And if the Spirit of God takes that idea, the idea that God has delivered you from something and yet you're still resting in fear about the direction unto which he's delivered you. Well, if the Spirit of God is ministering that unto your heart, take that to heart. Don't ignore that. And we'll actually spend a little bit more time next week again thinking about Lot's deliverance. But at the same time, it is also possible that the case here, that Lot just isn't thinking clearly. Uh, it's possible that it's not a faithlessness. Uh, more or less, it's just the, 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 the confusion of the circumstances. But one way or another, Lot requests that he might go to a nearby city. And we'll find in a few verses that this city's name is Zoar. And that rather than to the mountains. The angel responds in verses 21 and 22, and he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The angel accepts the Lord's appeal, acknowledges acknowledges that 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 city, that particular city, is outside of the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah, will not be overthrown. And so the angel says, go, escape there. And then notice the constraint of the character of God in this. He says, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. God's character restrains this angel from complete fulfillment of this judgment This angel cannot fulfill the commission that he has been given by the Lord until the righteous man is completely spared, completely out of the way. The angel can do nothing. The very divine judgment of God is delayed for the sake of God's mercy upon Lot. So Lot does this. And we read in verses 23 through 26. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained down, rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Now this verse causes us to consider for a moment, these verses. The implication of the King James translation is that we are fast forwarding to when Lot enters into Zoar, after which God then judges Sodom and Gomorrah. However, then as we continue in the text, it seems to indicate that they were still running away when fire and brimstone fell out of heaven. And indeed, if you've ever seen pictures of this, that's what you see. You see them running through you know, rocks and then fire falling and such. And there are a couple of different ways that we can reconcile this idea that they were still running, but then also the scriptures say that they entered into Zoar. First, it's very possible that verse 23, uh, which is the verse that says the sun was risen upon the earth when the law entered into Zoar, that verse 23... Um, was not intended to be a statement of sequence, but rather an editorial statement of sorts. That the writer is jumping ahead for a moment to tell us that Lot enters into Zoar, at which point he returns to the sequence of events and gives the narrative of what happened while they were fleeing. Possible. A second possibility is that the King James Bible didn't well translate the word entered here. We use the King James Bible because through a combination of understanding of the doctrines of inspiration uh, and preservation, along with our understanding of the history of the transmission of the text, 
We believe that the Greek New Testament that underlies the King James Version is a text that is far better reflective of both the of the character of both inspiration and preservation, the text, the subsequent text that have followed uh, in the 1800s and following, out of which nearly every other English translation of the Bible has been translated. We furthermore have confidence in the translation of the King James Bible, both in the capabilities of the men who translated it, as well as the piety and intentions of those men in translation. We do not, however, pretend that their translation is unimpeachable or that their choices regarding their translations are the only possible correct choices in the words that they used. In fact, for us to believe that the words that they used were the only correct possible words would be to believe something that they themselves did not believe, the translators themselves did not believe. It's evidenced in their preface to the reader where they spoke to this. It's also evidenced in the fact that they left numerous translator notes which acknowledged that their choices were not, only the, were not always the only valid choices as it related to the translation of the text. To this end, the word that is translated entered here is one which is used 2,307 times in the Old Testament. In other words, it's a very common word. And it's a very general word, meaning to come or to go. It can reflect something active or passive. It's a very flexible word. Many Hebrew words are very flexible. Many Hebrew words are very contextual. They, they, they are very contextual in, in their, their manner of use. And so the idea here of this word does not demand that they had entered into Zoar, but rather that they were coming towards Zoar. That's a perfectly acceptable translation here linguistically. They were on their way. They were well out of the way of Sodom, but perhaps not there yet. And that's entirely acceptable. So it's possible that verse 23 is a little bit of editorializing, that they entered into Zoar, and then we go back to the text and we, we, we see them running. It is also possible that uh, a slightly different gloss of the word, it's not a mistranslated word in our King James Bible, but a different gloss of that word might better reflect the intention of the text. But there's also a third possibility. And that third possibility is that they had entered the city before these things happened. And while this would seem unlikely in a sense, I, I don't even necessarily think it's possible. I, I, I like this explanation. First, I think it makes sense with the idea in verse 23 that the sun had risen upon the earth when they entered into Zoar. I think it also comports with um, what we find um, in verse 22, where the angel said, Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. So you've got, to get, you've got to get out of here. You've got to get there. And then there's another thing in the text that we'll see in a little bit that might also support this. And we'll talk about it more when we get to that point. So either way, when Lot and his family are well away from the city, the judgment of God falls upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And brimstone and fire fall from the Lord out of heaven upon those cities for their sin, for their breach of design, for the abomination and the, the, the uh, depravity that, they have, that has overcome them to the point of violence and wickedness. And they were utterly overthrown, including the plains that were surrounding the cities so that not only were the inhabitants of the city destroyed, but so vile was their sin in the eyes of God that the land itself was utterly wasted. And to this day, we know that the sea around which Sodom and Gomorrah was built is dead. It is in fact called the Dead Sea concentration too high for anything to live in it. 
and the land surrounding it is quite barren as a testimony to the world of just how wicked these cities were. And we talked about that wickedness last week. As they're running then, Lot's wife, the Bible says, looks back behind her, behind him. And this implies that she was in front of Lot as they were running, and she looked back behind her husband, and the Bible says that as she looked back, it turned into a pillar of salt. And that will again be something that we'll focus more on next week. So it will suffice us to say that what happened there is that her heart longed for what was behind her more than what was ahead of her. And in doing so, she became party to the judgment of the Lord, for she was not willing to disassociate herself with wickedness and the judgment in that moment of their fleeing. We finish the text today, verses 28 to 30. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the plain, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. So we cut to Abraham who apparently didn't see the events of the city of the judgment unfold. But when he got out of his tent in the morning and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, what he saw was smoke rising from its ashes. And in this, the text connects us back to Abraham's conversation with the Lord in Genesis 18. And this in order that we, even if we are a bit hard-hearted or a bit thick, would know full well that the reason why God did all of this is because Abraham was right. Because the judge of all the earth would do right. Then the text pans back to Lot. The Bible tells us that Lot is now in Zoar, but he's not there for long. The Bible says that Lot feared to dwell in Zoar, so he fled to the mountains with his two daughters, and he dwelt in a cave. And in this we find irony, right? Lot took the time as he was fleeing. They get pulled out of the city. The angel flee to the mountains, and Lot says, no, 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 I can't go to the mountains. I fear to be in the mountains. And the angels consent to that change, and so he goes to the city, and he's, in the city he is fearful, so he has to go to the mountains. And ends up right where the angel told him to go in the first place. Almost like God knows best or something. Almost like God wasn't just casting Lot aside by pulling him out of this judgment, but that his grace and mercy that he had shown to Lot was not just temporary in getting him out of the city, but was complete in the whole direction that he had called Lot to go, not only delivering him from the city, but also directing him toward the place that he ought to go for safety. It's almost like God, that we can trust his intentions toward us. That we can trust his direction, even at times when we aren't in the best of places. That he can, we can trust him to direct us to whatever might yet be available unto us. Now recall what I mentioned that th the three explanations for that translation in verse 23. That Lot entered into Zoar, and I said that it may be that it's editorializing something and jumping into the future for a minute and coming back. Or I said that maybe it's that the, the word ought to be that they were headed toward Zoar rather than entering into Zoar. Or I said, it's possible that they had actually entered into that city before the fire fell. And 
already given you a little bit of maybe why. Uh, first off is that the King James translation is in fact a fine and a valid translation. Second is verse 22. The angel said that they could do nothing until he had come thither, till, by implication, he reached his destination. But the third reason is because of this thing here. The people of Zoar did not accept Lot and his daughters. And maybe that's just because they knew that he would come from Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they were just fearful. This is the guy and his daughters from Sodom. Sodom just got destroyed. They're still left. And they were fearful. But maybe it was because that as they were entering through the gates, if it was indeed the fact that, it, that, that the fire could not fall until they had entered thither, and yet the, there was a, a, a tremendous urgency from this angel and thus from the Lord to judge this land, that the minute that they stepped through that gate, if the fire began to fell, fall, maybe it was then that as they're still fleeing through that gate, that Lot's wife looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. And you might imagine that if she was turned into a pillar of salt before all the eyes of the people of Zoar, that they would not be interested in Lot and his daughter staying there. That they would be terrified having presence there if, if that pillar were sitting there right at the gate of Zohar, that pillar of salt. One way or another, I think it's safe to assume that the city thought Lot was probably not a good person to have around. And that him being there put the city at risk. And so he felt unwelcome. He felt even in danger. And so he ended up in the mountains anyway. And that's where we're going to leave off in the text this week. Next week, we're going to consider some New Testament ideas surrounding the teaching of Lot. And then after that, we'll get back into uh, our text in Genesis. But a couple of applications as we come to the end of our exposition today uh, from this passage of Scripture. Think about is this. Proximity to sin does not make one sinful. And this is a foundational thought. As we think through what will be our next and, and primary application, point two, point one is foundational. Proximity to sin does not make one sinful. Being in proximity to, of sin does not make a, a, a person himself sinful, and this needs to be understood. Guilt by association is not a thing with God any more than it should be with men. Just because I live in a wicked city, this does not inherently mean I share in its wickedness. Just because I live in a wicked state or a wicked country, this does not make me inherently a part of their wickedness. As we go throughout Genesis 18, the soul, uh, as we thought, excuse me, in Genesis 18, we talked about this principle. And the principle that we talked about is the soul that sins, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that statement comes from the law, but it also comes most thoroughly from a prophecy in Ezekiel. And that Ezekiel prophecy lays down the principle, and I'd like to just show you that principle in its, in its fullness today. It means what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18. It's going to be a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. It speaks well for itself as we consider this idea today. Bear with me a bit. Let's read it together. Ezekiel 18, verse 1. The Bible says, the word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the Lord, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. The idea of this proverb was, Our parents sinned, 
and now we're suffering all the consequences of our parents' sin in judgment. As I live, saith the Lord God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase. He hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord God. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth the like to any of these things, and that doeth not any of those things, but even hath eaten upon the mountain, filed his neighbor's wife, hath oppressed the poor and needy, hath spoiled by violence, hath not restored the pledge, and hath lifted up his eyes to the idols, hath committed abomination, hath given forth upon usury, and hath taken increase, shall he then live? Is that son going to live because his father was just? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Now, lo, if he beget a son, so this wicked man beget a son, so the grandfather now is just, the son is unjust and wicked, and now that unjust son has, has a grandson, or has, he has a son, and it's now the grandson of the just man. If he beget a son that seeth father's sins which he hath done, and considereth, and doeth not such like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, hath not defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath oppressed any, uh, hath not withholden a pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, that hath taken off his hand from the poor, that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Yet say ye, why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will, be tur will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? But when the righteous turn away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and, doth that, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned 
in them shall he die. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not fair. God's not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and dieth in them for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die? Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed. He shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you your, all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. So as I said, this passage well speaks for itself. I'm not going to expound heavily upon this principle. We did hit it in Genesis 18, talking about that idea, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But simply put, God makes it clear. The man who sins will suffer the divine consequences of that sin. Those in proximity to him, but who are not sinning, will not. They may still suffer under the choices of the sinner. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they don't suffer under the divine consequences of the sins of others. The divine judgments of the sins of others is, is more specifically what I mean there. So we establish that as our foundation. Now let's talk about point two. God does not judge the righteous with the wicked, but proximity to sin can still have grave consequences. Proximity to wickedness does not necessarily come with judgment, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come with consequences. And we talked about this way back in Genesis 14, when we observed Lot being carried away after the battle with the armies, Chedorlaomer's armies come and they destroy the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah and, the, and the, the, the confederate nations of the plains. And Lot is caught up in their sin. Lot is caught up in the consequences of being in that city. He was not a wicked man, but he was caught up in the sin of wicked men. Now, he's not caught up in God's judgment. He is caught up in man's wickedness. And there's a difference between those. A man who is righteous does not get caught up in the judgment of God against a wicked man. But that doesn't mean that a man who is righteous will never get caught up in the sins of a wicked man or in the consequences of those sins on this earth. Lot was spared the divine judgment of God, and he always would be, because the judge of all the earth will do right. But that doesn't mean there weren't any consequences, does it? Lot lost his married daughters. These husbands disregarded Lot's warnings. Perhaps this was because they were more than willing to accept the sin that was around them. Because philosophically, they were absolutely subverted. They said, well, you know, love is love, Lot. They're just doing their thing. Who am I to judge? Can't be that big of a deal. Maybe that was it. But maybe it's also simply that their father-in-law's proximity to sin discredited him in their eyes. Here you are running in telling us that this place is about to be destroyed, 
But Lot, you've lived here for years. Why have you stayed here if it's this bad? If you don't like it that much, why have you hung around? You have no credibility here, Lot. Your proximity, your actions, your willingness, even if you're grieved at what's happening, your willingness to, to, to hang around and to be a part of what's happening in the city, to take even leadership in the city. You've discredited yourself. We don't believe you. And they died in that judgment. And it's entirely possible that our proximity to wickedness could discredit us in the eyes of those who need to be saved. That the manner in which I live my life casts a shadow upon my testimony. And so the authority that one might hold my words and my words too is not there. All the more so. We can say that Lot's proximity to sin did not cause him to fall into the path of judgment because he did not fall into the wickedness of those that were around him. But his proximity to sin did, in fact, draw his children away from him and away from righteousness at sin themselves. And this is another danger of proximity to sin. It may not be the danger for my generation, but what about the generation to come? Is my proximity to sin in my generation caused the, the generation ahead of me to invest in that sin? And perhaps they won't engage in it either, as Lot's daughters had not. But at least his sons-in-laws and married daughters were not willing to regard that sin with such clarity of moral purpose that they were willing to believe that God was indeed going to judge the city and to spare themselves from its judgment. It had, the, the reality of that sin had so softened in their hearts that they could not imagine God actually judging for the way he did. And as I say these things, let me add another bit of clarity. Not every decision to live in proximity to sin is inherently a wrong decision. For the man that takes his family to some place of wickedness as a minister of righteousness, to serve among wicked people, if God calls a man to do such a thing, then we know that God is in that and God will protect and preserve that man in the midst of that uh, men do not, cannot, as we talked about last Sunday night, uh, they cannot hear without a preacher. And uh, we as Christians are certainly not called to completely abandon interaction with the world that is around us. For if we separate ourselves in that manner from all the world around us, then we cannot reach the world. If we were to cloister ourselves into just little communities where we do not leave those communities, we do not step outside of those communities, we do not reach out to those that are without if we are so determined to separate ourselves from the proximity of wickedness that we leave the area where wickedness is entirely, then there is no hope for said wickedness but judgment, for there is no light if all the light goes and congregates around other lights rather than being in the midst of the darkness. So this message is not a message that's calling uh, you or I or anyone else definitively to simply go buy a piece of land on the highest and uh, completely disassociate ourselves from the world around us as tempting as that is. That's not the call. And yet we have seen many times where a man's attempts to minister among wickedness have still led to consequences, huh? Even if he's supposed to be there, even if that man is directed by God to be in that place and to do that thing, that does not mean that it will not come with consequences because of sin. When Jim Elliott and McCulley and Peter Fleming and Nate Saint and Roger Udarian went into the proximity of those Aka Indians down in Ecuador in the 1950s, 
to minister among them. They lived lives of distinction as they sought proximity to the natives that they might win those natives to Christ. And all five of those men were killed on January 8th of 1956. They sought, they sought proximity to sinful men as a means by which to shine the light and call those men out of darkness. And that seeking of that proximity, while it the wrong thing at all, did in fact still have consequences because of the actions of sinful men. By the way, their wives stayed on the field and won that tribe to Christ. Tremendous story if you've not read up on it. Most of you, I'm sure, have. There are consequences, though. Was, were, were, was, was that group of five men, were, were they caught up in a judgment of God? No. They were caught up in the sin of men. Property to sin can do that. That doesn't mean you're not necessarily supposed to be there. But when I place myself into proximity for all the wrong reasons, or out of apathy, or out of laziness, whatever reason I place myself in the proximity of sinfulness, I need to understand, I may not get caught up in their wickedness or in their judgment, but that doesn't mean that I can't, won't get caught up in some consequences. So we cannot broad brush and say that every instance of living in the proximity of sin is not right. But we can warn that even when it is right, apart from God's judgment, proximity to sin can come with true consequences. One more clarification on this idea. Sometimes you can't help your proximity to sin. Sometimes you have no choice in the matter. Children, God has given you the parents he's given you. And maybe your parents aren't spiritually well. And the proximity of your life to the sins of your parents will have dramatic consequences upon you. We've seen that before. Every single person has seen here children who have had to live under the consequences of the sins of their parents. That they've had to deal for years with the emotional, spiritual, or physical fallout of the sins of their parents. Sometimes you just don't have a choice in the matter. Citizen, maybe you live in a nation that you're born and it is a spiritually unwell nation. And there are many instances where proximity to sin is not necessarily our choice. God's given you the parents he's given you. And it may even come with some consequences for you. You might very well suffer because of their sin. Know this child, know this citizen. God is not judging you. That is not the idea there. God is not regarding you as sinful because of their sin. And yes, there may be suffering. This is how, this is the, this is how authority works. Fathers, employers, pastors. There's this funny thing about authority. The funny thing about authority is your choices affect the people who are under you. And it must be so. By God's design, it must be so. If you are not where you ought to be, if you are not the father and the husband that you ought to be, it is affecting your children. When our leaders are not the leaders that they ought to be, we do not stand in integrity and do the things they ought to do, it is we who are affected, far more than they are. They're not struggling financially, we are. They're not having to deal with the crime issues, they've got private security, we are. 
their decisions are affecting us. And that's how it, it, and it ought to be so. That is how it is designed. And so by God's grace, fathers, by God's grace, husbands, by God's grace, pastor, be the leader you need to be because your choices have consequences far beyond just you. And this can be a tragic thing when those choices are wrong choices, when we get caught up in the consequences of the choices of authorities in our lives for which we have no choice over our authorities. But even in spite of these sufferings, here's the thing. The soul that sins, it shall die. God does not catch you up in the judgment of the wicked, even if you're living under some of the consequences of said wickedness. In other words, though you might feel the suffering of these consequences, those, that, that suffering and those consequences do not need to define you. Christ is more than enough to make up for whatever you have lost through that proximity to sin. And on the authority of God's word, love for the innocent, for the vulnerable, and for the lost compounds his grace upon the life of one who has been harmed by proximity to sin outside of his control. When those who ought otherwise to be your protector or your provider end up being a curse to you, God is more than able to overcome that in your life, align yourself with him and be one of those righteous. And so we make these points and these side points, but the, the primary point still stands. Proximity to wickedness has its consequences. It caught Lot's Mary's daughters in their disregard for Lot's warnings. It caught his wife as well, whose heart was not able to so easily detach from the things that she was commanded to leave behind. And again, we'll talk more about her next week. Final point, which is not really a point because it's more like next week, but I'm, here, I'm leaving it here for thoroughness. God has told us how to avoid being consumed in judgment if we will listen. We talked about that in Ezekiel. We read through that in Ezekiel 18. The key is repentance. Next week, we'll dedicate our time to thinking through God's command to avoid judgment, God's mercy and grace, and of course, to remember Lot's wife. Before today, we recognize this, that if we will listen, if we will humble ourselves, if we will do that which is right before the Lord, we do have the formula to avoid being consumed in the judgment of the wicked. And so today, as we close, we close with these thoughts in mind. A passage that compels us to understand our God all the more, to understand ourselves in light of who He is, to understand our situations in light of what God has ordained. And Christian, the opportunity for us this morning to, is to explore our hearts on these things. We all have some proximity to wickedness, uh, whether that's uh, by dint of the family you're born into or uh, the state that we're born into. Uh, we could certainly leave and go to a different state and remove some of the proximity to wickedness. A little harder to leave the country even, um, which also has us in a proximity to wickedness. Perhaps God has ordained us it to be so. God has ordained Legacy Baptist Church to be here in this time and in this place for such a time as this. For we cannot reach the wicked if we're not near the wicked. But here's the question. 
We all have some proximity to wickedness. But the question to ask today is, are you placing yourself in a proximity to wickedness that you ought not be? Are you in a place of unhealthy proximity to wickedness? Are you where you should not be? Determine that you can handle it. Well, I'm not caught up. I'm not doing it, so I'll be fine. Yes, but what if you get caught up in it anyway? We talk in, our, uh, in a self-defense-minded idea about the rules of stupid. Don't be in stupid places at stupid times with stupid people doing stupid things. If you don't do that, you're going to be in a, in a much better place as it relates to getting caught up in something wrong. That's really just the question of, are you putting yourself in an unhealthy proximity to wickedness? You're determined you can handle it. Can you? You're determined you can handle that thing. You have placed yourself in some measure of proximity to the wickedness of the world, and you say, I can handle it just fine. You can. Okay, what about your children? Lot says, okay, I can handle Sodom. Maybe I can redeem Sodom. Okay, what about your children, Lot? What about your daughters that you made off to these men? What about them? Can they handle it? What about your wife, Lot? When she starts to create a life for herself in Sodom, is she going to be able to detach? Is her loyalty going to be able to remain with the truths of God's word above those things that she had left in Sodom? Maybe you can leave your married behind and you can keep your eyes straight ahead while fire and brimstone is falling upon them, but can your wife? What about your proximity to wickedness on her behalf? God doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked, and the soul that sins, it shall die. But there are many consequences to sin that rest beyond just divine judgment. And may we be circumspect to ensure that we are with the Lord on this one. May we search our hearts and the various areas where we find ourselves into proximity to wickedness. Certain things, unavoidable. We had no choice in the matter. Other things were there because we are to be a light in the darkness and we need that proximity to wickedness. But if it is not unavoidable, and if we're not there to be a light in the darkness, then we ought to carefully consider whether or not we ought to be in that proximity. Because proximity comes with consequences. lest we get caught up in those consequences. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.